Hey there, Zach here. Before we get started, I wanted to wish you all a happy new year and let you know about a few new things that we have planned for the upcoming months. As many of you know, we launched a Patreon account last year, and I cannot express how grateful I am for your support, especially for our newest patron, the Reverend Greg Brown, who literally signed up the moment that I submitted the new list of perks for the patrons. So great timing, Greg! So starting in February, all patrons who give at least $3 a month will receive access to exclusive audio content. Now, what does that mean? Well, for starters, we are going to be writing and recording some guided meditations to help you find your center in these tumultuous days. Uh, Moving forward, we'll also release bonus episodes, special interviews, and whatever else comes up as the year goes on. If you give at least $5 a month, you'll get invites to a monthly Netflix watch party. On the second Sunday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, we're going to get together on this wonderful platform called 2-7 to watch a movie together and then talk about it afterwards. I I know, right? Technology is (laughs) amazing. We're open to suggestions um, for whatever your favorite movie might be that is also on Netflix, which I know is kind of specific. But anyway, your financial help will not only help us to pay for things like hosting costs and whatnot, but also enable us to take this podcast to the next level. I've got all of this head full of dreams about full episode transcripts and live events and all kinds of other crazy ideas. So if you want to help us out, you can find us at patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast. Don't go to patreon.com slash down the wormhole because that is an aquarium in Canada somewhere, I think. But anyway... (laughs) If you can't give financially right now because, you know, pandemic and all of that, you can help us out by simply sharing this podcast with a friend. Um, Podcasts still, despite the fact that they're huge and so much money gets put into advertising, they still grow almost exclusively by word of mouth. So seriously, we really appreciate you just sharing this podcast with a friend, putting it up on social media, or just sharing any episode that you found helpful. So without further ado, let's get this episode started. You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... My name is Dr. Adam Pryor. I work at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. My favorite alien race from science fiction are clearly the Klingons. I'm Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University. And I guess my favorite alien race is the proto-molecule. Ian Benz, associate professor of elementary science education at UNC Charlotte and first species that came to mind was the Navi from Avatar. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and I can't believe that no one has said whatever species that Yoda is. Well, that I thought for sure that's what Ian was going to pick. I know. But... And Kendra. Come on. Come on, people. <laughs> that's a good point. Sorry, Yoda. Baby Yoda. Tiny, green, old man, cookie-eating, floaty, floaty, <laughs> little cutie pies. 
Uh, Sorry, it's okay, Kendra. You. I affirm your dark choice of the proto molecule. So that was, <laughs> that was well done. It's also kind of a kind of a deep cut. I, I don't know how many of our listeners are, are fans of the Expanse. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. It was a way of advertising. Ah, it was good. <laughs> I want everyone to watch it. <laughs> so free advertising for them. Yeah. Or paid advertising if you're listening, you sci-fi. Right. <laughs> Siffy. Siffy. <laughs> <laughs> well, so why are we talking about alien races, species? Oh, um, I, so I guess we're talking about my book today, which is why we're talking about alien species and races and that kind of thing. It really doesn't have anything to do with the book, but it seemed like a fine segue. <laughs> Um, I love it's how awkward living... you are about self-promotion, by the way. I hate it. Right? <laughs> like, it's... How it's long did it take worst. before your colleagues knew you had a podcast? Oh, uh, at least five or six months. <laughs> I mean, legitimately five or six months. Mm -hmm. And when did your book come out? Um, April. April. And now we're just now talking about it eight months later. Yeah, there was a pandemic. Oh, blame the pandemic. I blame the pandemic for everything. Yeah, it's a terrible pandemic. So anyway, yes, it is. you wrote a book, and what's it called? Uh, it is called Living with Tiny Aliens. Uh, oh, there's a subtitle. Uh, the Image of God for the Anthropocene. <sighs> I thought you were going to forget it. That was going to be a good moment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was highly likely <laughs> that, that I was not going to remember it. Um, spoiler alert, you know where subtitles come from? keyword searches so that people can find the book when they look for it on things like Amazon and Google. Hmm. Is that why every single book has a... It's, it's why every single academic monograph has like a subtitle that is like 18 words long. Yeah. Yeah. I did not realize that that was the one of the main reasons. It's well, because I have not written a book yet. I don't, I don't think there's any... me, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> My book is still not any... writing itself. <laughs> I haven't figured out. I thought it'd be done by now. I have the notes all over the place. I figured it'd written itself by now. That's right. You just line the post-its up. Exactly. Um, um, yeah, go ahead. I, well, I, I do have um, a question, but I, I thought that first I would just ask you, Adam, to like give a very brief summary of what the book is about and then also to say like what got you interested in writing this. Okay. So the um, – <clears throat> The, the sort of quick version of what the book is about is that it looks at linking together new work that's being done in astrobiology with um, a concept from a religious tradition. And in this case, the chosen tradition is Christianity and the chosen sort of symbol or feature of that tradition is um, being in the image of God. And it links those with um, this work that's being done in environmental studies on the the Anthropocene. Um, and it links all three of those together to make a case that the way religious traditions, in this case Christianity, think about its symbols, needs to be uh, up to date with latest findings in science. Um, and so in this case, those two scientific partners are astrobiology on the one hand and environmental studies on the other. Putting those three pieces together, um, the book makes the case that uh, 
Christians should rethink what it means to be in the image of God. Um, that usually we talk about that in, in terms of like an individual facet of what it means to be a human being. So you or me or Kendra or Ian or Rachel or any other person that you want to name, part of what constitutes them being a person for Christian anthropology is that they're in the image of God. Um, and I think in light of astrobiology, in light of the Anthropocene, that's fundamentally problematic, um, that we would be better off to talk about the image of God being something that we share together and potentially live into. Um, it's something that I would apply more to planets than I would to individual human beings, um, is the case that I make. That said, that's kind of dark uh, in terms of like, you know, individual human rights and that kind of stuff. Um, I'm, I'm aware of that. Um, so the, the end of the book is actually the part that I was really, really excited about. Um, it's talking about th facilitating three moods or way or dispositions, uh, presence, wonder, and play as ways of imagining how we live into being the image of God. So there's your summary of the book in this is a great summary. A short, short space. Um, I, I started working on it um, for two reasons. One, I, I was interested in play as a concept for theology because it comes up a lot, but usually in the context of like practical theology and not in the context of like philosophical or systematic theology. And so I was kind of just curious to sort of like explore that. And as I was trying to kind of figure out what I wanted to work on, I just finished a project and I was kind of shopping around things to to sort of work with, I, I had a colleague who I was having dinner with at the AAR, and we were talking about religion and science work, and she was a fellow at um, the Center of Theological Inquiry at Princeton Seminary, and she said, you know, they're doing a second year on this astrobiology project, you should really apply. And I said, sure, why not? I didn't know what I was really getting into, but it's a super cool set of programs they have out there, um, and this was a year-long fellowship, so... They said yes, and we picked up and moved to Princeton for a year, me and the kiddos and Rachel. And um, it's a weird experience to be paid for a year to do nothing but write. <laughs> um, so that was that was sort of how, like practically, that's how it actually sort of came about. And the focus and the reason I went to Princeton and the, and the big part about the astrobiology is that the project at Princeton was partially funded by NASA, um, looking at societal implications of astrobiology. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I got there, I got a crash course on on astrobiology, and I knew a little bit about it before then. But um, what really came through is that a lot of the work that I'd been doing on, as my colleague here calls it, um, you know, theology for bacteria, actually fit in really well with um, with astrobiology. Yeah, that's really cool. I, one of the things that I noticed and was really interested by, but it, it seems to be a, a pretty basic assumption of um, your book, is that I, I've never heard astrobiology spoken of in terms um, that, that are not really about alien life. Like what you're saying is that it's not really about the search for alien life. And that's always my sort of like pop culture assumption of what astrobiology is about. And so um, I thought that was really interesting, though, and really insightful for just like the rest of what not only you are talking about, but other things that I hear about astrobiology. So I'm curious, like, is that something that 
is pretty basic to other people talking about astrobiology? Or is that something that's specific to the way you're speaking about it in your book? It's, it's, and could you say like more, you know, just context for like yeah. the term itself? Yeah. So um, it's weird, right? Because like astrobiology is a new field. Like you, it wasn't until the past 10 or 15 years that somebody would like go and get a degree in astrobiology. Right. Like, so all of the, the sort of, you know, senior persons in astrobiology all did their PhD in something else. And so it's this highly interdisciplinary, highly like transdisciplinary project, which also means like people use the term in really different ways. And so early on, it definitely got associated with things like SETI, right? The search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But a lot of the folk, a lot of the scientists working in it, right, are, are, you know, planetary scientists, they're geologists, um, or they're astronomers, uh, or they're microbiologists, um, or systems biologists. So they're folks who are interested in how the principles of their own field work themselves out in space, which is now my favorite phrase to use for anything, because you can add in space to whatever you're doing, and it sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, Can you be an astro religious studies scholar? <laughs> I I am. I hope so. <laughs> I think I think you should be able to be. Um, actually, I, and I will say, like to be fair, right? Like I think part of the idea of the the CTI's program was that you would have a cadre of folks working in different areas of religious religious and theological studies who now become like experts in working with astrobiology so that you have something like astro theologians. And if you look at other fields that like you can find work on like astro sociology. That's my favorite. Yeah. I've seen hmm. that one too. Astro sociology. Yeah. So thinking about the formation of societies and colonization of other planets in space. Huh? So it's, it's, you know this, where like, you can learn more ranging. about that, Zach, where, the expanse. <laughs> so I definitely need to watch it then. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You can prop up your laptop on my book while you watch it <laughs> to get a better height. Will the words come through the laptop, through the screen, and out into my brain? Just like the post-its arrange themselves. Yes. Got well, it. So Adam, Adam, I got to say when I – I, when I was first looking into these sorts of topics and that, you know, astro, insert your field here, uh, my first thought and, and kind of what in talking with people, too, is that like, wh why? Because we don't we've never found life. So astrobiology is like the study of something that we've never found and astro sociology. And, you know, there's like a dozen people in space. Um <laughs> like all of these things seem highly speculative and that it's like you are basically talking about a fictional universe. So why should people care about these? Yeah. This is actually why I wanted to end the book with play is because essentially I would argue that like these fields are engaging in academic play in the best senses of the word, right? Like there's not necessarily a pure product that comes out of this research, right? Like this is in a lot of ways, true, true theory forming and question asking that goes on. But I think the other piece is right. Like that 
because astrobiology gets this bad rap, right? Like astrobiology is the study of aliens. No aliens exist. This is a quote unquote science of something that you can't point to. Um, and I would argue that really what, what astrobiology is really doing is looking at, can you turn biology into a first principle science in the same way that like physics is? So if you look at biology from ancient Greeks to now, it hasn't changed that much. I mean, there have been new discoveries and, um, it's interesting, right? But it's, it's largely a descriptive science. There's living stuff uh-huh. and biology is in the business of describing the living stuff. <laughs> it's not in the business of formulating a principle by which life emerges or articulating what the system is by which life occurs anywhere. And I think that's the piece that like, to my mind, the most exciting stuff going on in astrobiology is trying to shift the way biology itself would function. You probably need to find some other instances of life arising in order to determine like what exactly those pieces would be. Um, and you need to determine whether or not it would be statistically likely or probable. Um, but that's big, but I am fully aware, <laughs> like, but it, it's still, I think a really interesting area to pursue. And I think even if you don't find alien life, astrobiology ends up changing the way you ask questions in biological sciences more generally. And that's in and of itself a value. I think that makes a lot of sense. And and, and I think the way that you end uh, end your book on uh, play and wonder, and what was the other one? Play, presence. Pre- presence. presence. <laughs> um, but I, I think that that's, that makes so much sense. And I, I feel like the the way that science happens, it is very playful. Like you, mm-hmm. you do, you have questions and you don't really have any like material evidence for those questions. So you have to look and it just takes a lot longer to look for anything when the the field is like all of the space and the cosmos. So I just feel like if you adjust for scale, uh, astrobiology doesn't seem that far-fetched to me. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, I think like because the popular conception is like this is about aliens and specifically it's about intelligent aliens, mm-hmm. like that perception of what's going on doesn't permeate into the general public. Right. Though I, I will say there are folks who would disagree with me about that vehemently, that that it actually permeates in the general public a lot more than I would give credit for. So I have a question for you. And I'll you said early on in the conversation when you talked about, you know, the general essence of your book, and I'll probably butcher this, but the idea of a different way of looking at the us in the image of God. Is that kind of along the lines? Yep. Right. So yeah. how is it that what you're arguing here, what can that do for people who don't see the value in like astrobiology, for example? So who are who, people who are religious, um, and in this case, you know, people who are Christians, um, who struggle with the idea of astrobiology and funding that kind of work and something, what could be a practical takeaway 
for them? Like, what would be your argument for them? Not about the importance of astrobiology, but, but about your your argument of changing that perception of the, the image of God. Right. Um, yeah. So there's an in-house argument sort of going on in the book about how should Christians be thinking about this concept? Mm-hmm. And there are two reasons for doing that. One is um, it's carried a lot of weight in Christian theology for not a lot of reference in scriptural texts. Um, and, and I think we should be aware of that. That's one piece. The second piece is, um, as a concept, it's been really important in religion and science as like a field. So you'll find any number of books out there on theology and science and, and being in the image of God. I mean, tons of them. In a, in a lot of ways, it's not specifically like where the field of like religion or in science or theology and science started, but um, it was certainly a specific point of interdisciplinary investigation that raised itself up early on. Um, and so there's a lot of material out there. But almost all that material is focused on relating theology and physical anthropology. Right? So it's worried about human evolution. Right. Right? Which which is a natural sort of pairing for thinking about the image of God. My pitch to folks who would sort of just treat this in terms of like Christian theology would be to say there's a bias inherent in your thinking about the image of God if you think that's the best scientific partner. You've assumed at the outset that this is about individual human beings. Okay. Or about human being as a species in terms of the way you've set up the dialogue. And so if you choose a different partner, you may end up with a different formulation of the doctrine. Um, so that's the that's the sort of like technical in-house argument mm-hmm. that that I would sort of offer. Um, the like probably like more public facing argument is to say, I would make the case that you're not in the image of God yet. And that's the part that's maybe different from the tradition. <laughs> I would argue that the image of God is something we live into together and not something you or I possess. Okay. So it's not a foundation for like moral rights. It's a responsibility for facilitating a certain way of being on the planet. Okay. So it's only in scripture, like, what is it, five times, four yeah. times? It's not not much. Uh, and even the Hebrew words don't show up much in the Hebrew Bible. Mm. Like, it, Salem shows up, I think, 17 times total. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, mean, I think most people are most familiar with it in Genesis 1, where yeah. and God oh, said, yeah. let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Right. That's the, I think that's the yeah. James version. Um, and so it's this idea of creating, at least in popular uh, conception, of creating demigods almost. Yeah. That God Almighty looks down on this beautiful creation and says, we need to create mini-me's to, <laughs> to garden, essentially, to facilitate this creation. That, that's Adam and Eve's first first job is to be gardeners and to tend to the animals. Adam's supposed to name them. And so the the image of God in that uh, that we've read into it is highly individualistic because it was given to an individual in the beginning of the of the scripture. And 
than theologians and others have argued forever about, you know, is this some kind of intrinsic uh, divine spark in, in, a, in a way? Um, is this the soul that we're talking about or is the image of God as in like doing business on behalf of image of God, like you're my emissaries? Is this like, does God have eyes and ears and a nose? Probably not, for, but for, you know. For which it got used a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Did it actually like legitimately get used in that way? Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. Like so so you can you can find good evidence within the Christian tradition, right? Like that this concept becomes uh, is, is is like described in like deeply physical ways, huh? Um, so, like my favorite one is uh, my favorite one is Luther. So, in his lectures on Genesis, when he's talking about one twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight, mm-hmm. he goes through this whole description of like the characteristics that a human being would have possessed before the fall. That are it's it's like this like superhuman set of qualities in order that we would be more physically like God. Like that's clearly the implication. Huh. Um, so we would have been like strong, like a bear and had eyes like a lynx. There's a whole like, like laundry list he goes through and he's not pulling that out on his own, right? Like this is like a, a piece of the tradition sort of from say 600 through about 13 or 1400. It's a big part of how it gets conceptualized. And this is, of course, I'm not, I'm not advocating for that in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> I just I want to be clear. But also, they are super awesome to read. I like these descriptions. Mm. Also, I would like to be strong like a bear. So, <laughs> I always imagine myself. Uh, well, I want I want to backpack a lot next year. Maybe I don't know. And I imagine myself having encounters with bears. And I always win the fight in my head. I can see that. So I'm. Pre- <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> I know. I know that I'm not stronger than a bear, but I just can't help feel that like I have a chance to win. <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, you are created in the image of God. Bob and weave. <laughs> totally see it. Just gotta live into the imago day, there you go. and it <laughs> and can then, happen. Then you could do it. <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, um. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was just going to ask a question um, about the, especially since I think you have to go soon, Adam. Yeah, I will. I will. Um, Because I wanted to ask a question about the end of the book, the chapter that you close with, where you're talking about like particular environmental examples and how this ties into the the argument you're making about um, like this playfulness of the Imago Dei. And so I just wanted to like hear you talk about how you close the book and um, how I think that, especially for people that haven't read the book or might be interested in reading the book, what um, these like more particular specific examples mean for like the practical implications of the argument you're making. Yeah. Um, I think it's fair to say that as I was working on the book early on, a major critique, and it was a, it was a well-founded critique was like, this is great, but what, what the heck do you do with it? And I, I'm still not entirely sure what exactly you do with it, but I at least took a stab at the, at the close of the book and saying like, all right, well, here's some like practical examples where we could play with sort of current environmental crises for which 
there are in some cases solutions and in some cases not. Um, but that could maybe exemplify, like when I talk about play, this is what I mean, right? Um, and so whenever I talk about play, I'm always thinking of like my, my kids and specifically this like the way in which for children, there are no rules except the rules that are set down by their little play group, right? So if you like watch kids on a playground, Mm-hmm. suddenly whatever items are around them can become any number of imaginary objects. But there are also rules that are immediately constructed about how you may or may not use the objects, <laughs> which I think is what's like super fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's a second reality. Yeah, right? So play constructs a second reality, almost without fail. But the more that we get old, invested in day-to-day concerns about, you know, like putting food on the table the less freedom we have to engage in that kind of speculative play to create other realities. My contention and sort of the end of the book is to say like, I don't think you'll solve the environmental crisis unless you free some people to do that kind of play. And by some people, I mean a whole, whole bunch of the human population. Right. Um, So, I think my favorite, well, I have two favorite examples. One is the the one that was not my idea, but was actually from like a set of church groups here in Kansas, um, the green team, looking at like encouraging congregations to do environmental stewardship. And so they talked, one of their suggestions for congregations is to put native species into their church directories as a way of facilitating awareness of like shared reality, which I think is brilliant Mm -hmm. and also hilarious. And I have not been able to get any traction that the Bethany website where they like laying, like lay out all the faculty would now also start to include like native species as like part of what would be like, I really think, I think it would be fun. Also appropriate. Also I want Prairie chicken to come right next to prior when someone looks me up because <laughs> uh, it's a terrifying bird, but also protected. Um, I have a woodpecker that lives in a hole that it keeps pecking uh, on the outside of our building next to my office. And so literally is a member of our church because it lives inside of the wall of right? the church. We can't it get should rid of get, it. It should get a page in the directory. It might as That's well. That's what I'm saying. Um so like that was like one example that like kind of came up as a as a as an awareness piece. But like then the other is this um this project out of of MIT where they were looking at could you decrease global temperatures and increase rainfall at these border regions of the Sahara Desert by turning that space into a major green energy production zone, working specifically with wind farms and solar panels, mm-hmm. and you can do the computer modeling to show how much increased rainfall you could create in those marginal zones of the Sahara by doing this. Why would that and, create rainfall? Uh, you, you increase, it has an albedo effect. So essentially because you're cooling the temperature, you end up condensing more water. That's the, the sort of like very non-technical succinct way of doing it. Because hmm. the solar panels are absorbing energy that would have otherwise gone into the ground? Oh, and all, otherwise might have reflected back into the atmosphere. Okay. Okay. Um, so 
it's this really interesting piece. And, and what I like about that example is like, we have all of the technology to do said thing. These are, these are not like things we would have to invent. Like it would just be an investment of human resources and capital. And you could, you could do this now. Um, but we can't imagine doing that. So I actually, I actually made my students do a case study on this article um, because I had three business majors in my class. And when I brought it up, they were all like, no. And I was like, but why not? Like, like what would it take? Like, <laughs> you all clearly recognize why not, right? Like, you couldn't produce enough profit for shareholders. Right. Okay, fine. I would argue that's not living into the image of God. I wouldn't call you Christian if that's the value that you're going to hold first. And <laughs> then one step further, right? If you don't hold that as a value, could you do this? So it was really sort of like interesting to watch these like three students sort of like play with and come up with a model for like, yeah, actually you could do this if you capped what you expected for profit, like for shareholder profits. And then like they, they were working on like constructing a feasible model by which you would turn the Sahara Desert into an energy production zone and like how long it would take and those sorts of pieces. Hmm. It was actually quite detailed. Um, and I was, to my mind, right, that is the sort of like notion of play that I look at and I go, that's that's probably where these sorts of ways of living in the image of God and frankly dealing with the environmental crisis we face start. Yeah, I I really I really like the framing of play, and I, I think it's easy for people who haven't um, you know thought a lot about play to to think like why why is that the frame? Um, but I think that uh, I, I know you also reference a lot of like theorists in your um, chapter on play, but I recently uh, was reading Johann. Hoitzinger, uh, who you reference, who is like kind of a a foundational um, theorist of play. And um, he describes play as uh, really blurring the boundary between play and seriousness. And also uh, what you reflect in that in chapter is that play is so intimately connected to creativity and imagination and so much of our problem solving like, like that's why it's connected to play is because you have to have the space, like you're saying, to feel free enough to express this creativity um, that is so essential for problem solving, um, especially with like massive problems, um, that it just makes so much sense. But it's so easy to miss, you know, just because life doesn't always uh, appear that playful. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and I mean, right, like, so evolutionary biologists have actually talked about this for a long time, right? The, the sort of basic sense here is you have to relax selection pressures, right? The things that you have to address lest you would die. <laughs> like, if those aren't being met, you don't have space for play. Yeah. And they have to be met in a way that gives you enough freedom that you don't have to be constantly pursuing them. Mm. Yeah. Right? And it's, like, sort of interesting and ironic because even though – even though it's it's true that play is not essential for survival, if we have the space to play, 
play can actually help us survive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or like, you know, head off future problems. So in some sense, it seems to me to be a little bit more essential than we give it credit for sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what I'd say is like, it's essential to any notion of flourishing. Right. <clears throat> like you might be able to survive without it, but I'm not sure you want that survival. Right. Yeah. This was a big challenge that I had. Um, I think I talked about this in our environmental racism episode that I, in the past, in, in, UC, in United Church of Christ settings, have you know, said to people, we need to focus much more on environmental issues because there's not going to be a world to protect if we don't. Um, and we're putting all of our time and effort into uh, racial justice issues. And I, I think we're missing the really pressing thing because if the world is uninhabitable, like the racial justice issues won't, won't matter because we won't be here. And I was... Uh, gently reminded by some people that we're disenfranchising a huge swath of the population because they're living, you know, in fear of their lives. And so are not free to be creative, to be uh, problem solvers, that the, that the majority of African-American people care about the environment. That cannot be said about white people. I think it's like 40% of, of white people. And so, but we have this entire group of people who are not free to go out and make these kinds of playful solutions to things because they're worried about their own lives. And so in many ways that the racial justice piece has to precede the environmental justice piece. And they we've been sidestepping it for so long because we don't want to make it a political issue. But you know, there's a, just this whole group of people who are not free to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I think um, Whitney Bauman has shaped my thinking on this a lot because he makes a, I think he makes one of the best cases for saying, like, if you really want to deal with environmental issues, then you need to address things like universal health care and debt reduction. Mm. Because you can't solve those environmental problems right. unless you're dealing with these systemic issues by which then people are freed in order to to think about those environmental problems. So the the challenge is that like our our tendency is to like segregate out these issues, right? There's a there's a problem with race. There's a problem with the environment. There's a problem with workaholism. There's a problem with name your social ill that you want to put and we treat them as sort of separate distinct entities. But they're not. Right? That's why they're systemic problems. Right? So you have to think about them in terms of various systemic solutions that you can generate, which probably means dealing with the overlaps between those issues. Yeah, It's also my case why the poor boy throwing the starfish back into the sea doesn't make a <laughs> difference. <laughs> but if enough people do it... <laughs> <laughs> and poor Rachel. I didn't have many goals. I didn't have many goals for today, but to work that back in one more time <laughs> was definitely one of them. Poor Rachel <laughs> is so busy with Hanukkah preparation that she couldn't be here to defend her starfish. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'll remind you is a holiday that celebrates the people who throw the starfish back in. Little people who gathered together and made a big difference to kick out those darn Seleucids and rededicate the temple. 
However, I will say they did not make enough <laughs> systemic change. And then the Hasmonean <laughs> dynasty only lasted 100 years before the Romans came in. So, but that's a different story. <laughs> that's, another, that's another episode. We can talk Hasmoneans another day. <laughs> so, Adam, before you leave, do you have any parting thoughts? No. Okay. <laughs> I think the show needs to end right there. <laughs> like me asking him saying no you have been listening to down the wormhole <laughs> like that's it right I'm there totally right? okay with that yeah oh my gosh that's perfect. Uh, um I, I i don't know like i guess i look at it and kind of go i have an axe to grind in the background of the book which Anyone who knows me shouldn't be surprised about. But um, I think my big concern is that we have so focused on individual human rights as a way of generating change that it – this is not actually in the book, but it's it's the piece that after writing the book sort of crystallized for me. We've, we've so focused on individual human rights as the way of generating major change major political and systemic change that I think we've lost our ability to playfully look at other means of generating those changes. Um, and that has become our one tool by which to analyze the problems that we face. And it's an important tool and it's really good and it has progressed homo sapiens in a variety of ways. And yet, it may not be sufficient to deal with the impending environmental crisis that we're going to face. And I think there's something that comes out of this too that says like as a species that's now astrobiologically aware, I think we have to come to grips with the finitude of our species in a way that we've never had to before at the same time that we have to deal with this environmental crisis. There aren't too many things that I think astrobiology makes really problematic for Christian theology, but I think it really challenges eschatology. Hmm. Can you really hold on to this notion that in one place, you know, it's like animaniacs, right? Um, <laughs> we're on. all really, we're all really <laughs> puny. Like, <laughs> it's a great big universe. Hmm. We're all really puny. We're tiny little specks about the size of Mickey Rooney. <laughs> and if you take that seriously. We are a little loony. Uh. <laughs> if you, if, but if you really, really take that seriously and you think about the fact that eventually, right, life on this planet will cease. Inevitably. Right. Over a long, 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 long period of time, life on this planet will cease. Can you still hold in a robust way this notion that God's interaction with the entirety of the cosmos is centered on this planet? That seems like a really, really hubristic claim. Hmm. And if you're a Christian, you've got a good tradition to say that when you see that kind of hubris, you should suspect sin. And so I think those are the, the sort of two pieces for me that that come out of this in terms of thinking about practical, somewhat practical consequences for, for folks who are like in the field. 
This has been episode 68 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. Thank you for coming on this journey with us. And again, make sure you go to patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast to check out all the new perks for patrons and all the fun stuff that we have planned. Tune in next week as we continue our Sinai and Synapses interview series with science education professor, Dr. Amanda Glaze Krampus. It's another really good interview that you will not want to miss. So until next time, friends, be safe and be well.